1: Make your second half of life even better than the first. Today's episode is chapter two of a unique three-part conversation that I began last month focusing on a fascinating book, What Went Right? Lessons from Both Sides of the Teacher's Desk, by co-authors Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott. Roberta, a longtime friend, was one of my classmates at Syacet High School on Long Island in the late 1960s. George was our 11th grade American lit teacher. Roberta, a lifelong writer and author, is currently the director of the nonprofit Squire Family Foundation, dedicated to encouraging the teaching of philosophy at pre-college levels. And George, now a writer and poet, has had several teaching jobs, as well as extensive editorial experience in businesses and media fields over the course of his career. In my first conversation with George on June 13th, we talked about how he and Roberta reconnected after more than 50 years on social media, and began a steady correspondence that evolved into a provocative exchange about their perspectives over several decades from inside and outside the classroom, which ultimately turned into their book, What Went Right? Essentially a story of their own lifelong learning experiences. Everything from what they've learned about the roles of teachers as instructors and mentors to the continuous debates over curriculum and standardized testing, to the fundamental questions about how education should prepare young people to be human that is discerning and productive citizens in a complex, often unpredictable world. George and I talked about his early experiences at Syosipa with Roberta, and I shared some of my own recollections of that time, looking back at how things were, not so much with nostalgia, but rather reflecting on what they meant, given changing perspectives and experiences over the course of our lifetime. Today, we're gonna continue that conversation with both Roberta and George, focusing more on what's changed in public education society, and our own lives since Syosset. As I mentioned earlier, it's a decidedly different spin on the concept of lifelong learning, which as we get older, is one of the most important ingredients to healthy aging. It's a story about teaching and learning, but also what we've learned about ourselves. So now I'm delighted to welcome Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott. Roberta and George, welcome to the
2: show. Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Great to have you. So. So as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk mainly about what's changed since your Sasset days. But first, I wanted to catch up a little bit with you, Roberta, um, and bring you into the show. Um, And I'm going to, even though George and I talked about how you guys reconnected, I'm going to use my prerogative as author of the podcast, and I'm going to switch back to a different narrator. (laughs) Because often you have different views of things. So so tell me a little bit about your recollection about how you and George reconnected.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because it came uh, because of social media, which I have decidedly uh, mixed feelings about. Um, I was uh, somewhat active on Facebook um, in whatever year it was, George, I don't remember when we first started corresponding, but um, I saw that um, George was posting uh, various articles or sending links to various articles about the state of education these days and his views very much Uh, corresponded to mine and um, uh, I believe I I reached out um, through social media starting by saying you know I'm not sure if you remember me even though I had a hunch that you did because it was uh, you know we're also narcissistic it seemed like such a fantastic (laughs) class how could he not remember all of us Uh, and um and so we started emailing which was a much more copacetic way of being in touch for me anyway and i I think for george too and we were just going back and forth about our experiences since we had lost touch in 1969 when when ron and i graduated and um and the um again our our thoughts were very much in keeping i was very taken with the fact that george you had had this experience of teaching in the 60s during that period, then you took a break from teaching and then you returned. I thought that gave you a very, and you said yourself that it gave you a, a unique perspective on how things had changed, even though the settings were very different, suburban and, and inner city. Um, so as we got deeper and deeper into our conversation, it just occurred to me one day that uh, maybe these were worth uh, compiling and um, and and writing about in a more serious way. Then the interesting thing was that we casted about trying to figure out how to write this book. Should we write it in a, a single voice? Should we have alternating chapters? Um, until we finally came upon the fact that since the book began as as a series of letters, we should preserve that, um, which was kind of um, very satisfying,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and also surprising in its own way. Which which is a testament to the power of the written word mm-hmm. and to literature, which is where we the three of us met and began and and remained faithful to. So that was a very satisfying evolution.
1: Right right yeah and and for me when i discovered that you guys had reconnected now i i feel you know well i feel privileged that we've been friends for such a long time and you know you know we go with, everyone goes through different cycles in life and, and raising family and moving around and so forth so we were able to keep in touch um uh, occasionally and over the, but continually um and then i really appreciate that every look forward to every time we had a, a coffee somewhere or uh, you know shared a mexican lunch somewhere yeah, um, and, and and it was also just a real um a real joy to find that you had reconnected with george because as i mentioned to george in our previous conversation it's you know how often do you get a chance to really you know reflect uh, with a you know a, a teacher who had a, a you know profound experience um on uh, f- a f- a profound influence on you um as you know because most of us you know graduate and like Bye. <laughs> you know, we go off to college and, and maybe we'll see you at a reunion if, if, you know, if teachers show up, but you don't get a chance to find out what happened to teachers and, and even think about it, like, oh, you know, you think about teachers, they just stay, right? Like parents, you just stay, but that's not true. You know, your, your experiences uh, evolve over time too. So let me pick up on what you said, Roberta and, and switch to you, George. You know, so talk a little bit about your Philadelphia experience. You know, your Philadelphia story, because that it's it isn't uh, it is sort of unusual that that a teacher, once you move on to another career, go, goes back So talk about that a little bit, about why you did it and what you discovered.
3: Um, well, one of the reasons I think one of the reasons that teachers, one of the common reasons that teachers leave teaching is is that they can't afford to continue teaching. Right. Um, that was one of the main reasons I left uh, Long Island is an expensive place to live, and teachers don't make the kind of salary that you need. At least they didn't then. Right. And I don't think they do now, either, to live on Long Island. And, uh, but um, when uh, in the intervening decades between the time I left Sy- Syosset and the time I began at Phil- in Philadelphia, I had moved to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had had a daughter with my, with my, the wife that I was married to in Syosset. Uh We got divorced.
0: Uh,
3: I remarried. And at one point, uh, maybe after 30 years after, after I had uh, been a teacher, my, my second wife said, you know, she was, she, she was working, she's professional, she had an income. She said, you know, you could afford to go back to teaching. Mm. I said, huh, huh. <laughs> you're right, you're right, I could. And uh, so I, I did, and I started in a charter school. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that charter, I was not certified, well, I wasn't certified in New York any longer because it had been so long. And uh, I certainly was not certified in Pennsylvania because uh, I had never even thought about being certified. Um, but charter schools, not all charter schools require the, the teachers be certified. In, mm-hmm. And um, that makes it easier for them to hire people. It, it makes it easy for them to hire people who are not necessarily conventional teachers. Uh, it also makes it easier for them to pay them less and mm-hmm. makes it easier for them to uh, fire them when they start getting expensive and replace them with new graduates who are, don't have, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot. I'm, I'm not pro charter school as a rule. Um, I, uh, I think there is a place for charter schools, for mm-hmm. some charter schools and we can get into that sometime if you want to. Okay. But but uh but I started at a charter school. I uh I was teaching uh 7th and 8th grade English mm. in this charter school which was a trip and a half mm-hmm. and uh and I decided I wanted to go back to high school teaching and uh and I did eventually find find that we go through the process that Pennsylvania mandated for getting certified, I did get certified. Once mm-hmm. I was certified, the uh, School District of Philadelphia hired me to teach in uh, uh, Title One High School. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was not Syosset. It was, it was very, very different. Right. But you know, but it was still rewarding. The wrong mm-hmm. It's different rewards, mm-hmm. but but still rewarding, right? And, right. And yeah, it was the the teachers getting getting to the point that you raised. I guess the changes in, in teaching, mm-hmm. um, in education, in public education, the uh, the teachers who had been there all along didn't really see it mm-hmm. because it it had been an evolution, right. I did see it, as as Roberta mentioned. It was it was a unique perspective. It was I was gone, and what I remembered about teaching was Saosig. When I mm-hmm. came back to it, it was Philadelphia in in the early 21st century, right. and it was a whole different world. And it was not all a result of urban versus suburb. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Yeah. Well, what were some of the differences? And, and, and Pete can jump in too, Roberta, because you've dealt with students, you know, uh, closer to our contemporary times too, in terms of what changes there have been um, in in the classroom. I think that you, in our last conversation, George, you talked about it it's, it's harder today in many ways. And, um, um, you know, there, there are more constraints on teachers. And I think both of you have mentioned, I think in your book, you had extensive conversations about The difficulties, too, with this, uh, especially public education, this constant, um, uh, I would say, fixation on fixing it, right? (laughs) You constantly have people coming in to try to fix it, whatever they think needs to be fixed. Um, And and so that that to me, you know, has made it harder being a teacher today, Uh, not to mention, you know, people talk about teachers' pensions, but it is, you know, um, you mentioned, George, and and perhaps you want to comment to Roberta on just you know one of the issues is how, how the public looks at teachers you know the demands they have on them and the responsibilities with you know less and less authority in some respects I don't know if you want to jump in Roberta or, or George either one
2: well I just want to say very quickly that the, there's been I've been following a story in the news about uh, the teaching of reading and how that has mm-hmm. been swung you talked about the need to fix you know, when, when um I was doing my student teaching, I guess that was in the early 70s, um, when I was still in college, there was a big movement toward that, I think it's called the whole language movement, where you don't teach kids to read through phonics, you 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 just have them write their own words however they sound, and and you and you do it through a holistic approach. And now that has come under great criticism, and everyone's back to phonics. So um it seems to me that, you know, teach, teaching is this is something we try to talk about in our book, that teaching is is very vibrant and it's relational and it cha- it's constantly changing. I think it's a mistake to think that, um, you know, that it that I mean, I know there's the you know, the core skills that need to be taught, but in many ways, the way it's taught um, is is often more of a hybrid than ideological. And um, I think, but I, th- but I think that so many other factors um, are at play now. Um, and I, you know, I, I give you so much credit, George, for going back and getting certification. The thought of of my entering a classroom of young kids today is just <laughs> completely beyond. I mean, I, I can't even imagine it. I can't keep up with the technology. I can't keep up with the changing. Notions of basic concepts that I thought would not be changing, such as about privacy and gender, and all the ways in which things have moved on. So I think we hang on to this notion of stability over time, and that's completely misleading. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and
3: and although I too see attraction, feel attraction to stability. Um, there's, there's also the other side, the flip side of it, which is, I think, I think one of the things that teachers are less able to do today than they were able to do at the end of the sixties is adapt their teaching to the needs of their classes. Mm -hmm. Um, and even the individual students in those classes, um, it's, they're, they're, they're much more regimented. They're much more. Uh, constrained by the 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 testing that's going to occur periodically through the through the students lives and uh and it and much more constrained by by the uh by the external pressures that are being brought to bear on the schools the mm-hmm. the uh you know i remember parent teacher organization meetings in say said, they got fairly contentious but but the, uh, the parents were pretty much willing to admit that the teachers knew more about education than they did. That's no longer the case. Um, and the teachers today are constantly being questioned on educational issues, and, and it, which is preposterous. I mean, if there's anyone who knows about education, it's the educators themselves. And mm-hmm. it's not the politicians and it's not the whoever people that are out there um it's uh the reformers who are mostly politicians Mm -hmm. these days are are uh identifying themselves as educational experts but they're not and and even the ones who are positively motivated i think are at best paternalistic and Mm -hmm. and and at worst they're they're actually destructive they're 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 disparaging they're they're uh trying to get rid of tenure which is the the one thing that teacher teaching ever had as as a like an attraction for people um and uh and they're basing they're even basing uh teacher evaluations on student test results Mm -hmm. um which is like like basing a lawyer's uh evaluation or a doctor's evaluation on how many of his patients get sick i mean mm. it's you know it's not it's not i i it i can't think of a parallel it's right. that's not that's not a good analogy right, but i right, can't think right. of a good one
1: well hold on to that thought george we're we're gonna take a short break uh but it'll be a very short break and when we come back, we'll be talking much more with co-authors Roberta Israeloff and George McDermott uh, we will be right back. So don't go anywhere.
0: Find out what's happening on the voice America talk radio network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at voice America TRN. Today, our 40 sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline.
3: Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back to 45 Forward,
1: where we're talking with George McDermott and Roberta Israeloff, the co-authors of What Went Right. Uh, before we continue, I wanted to let you know you can find out more about their backgrounds by going to my website, rowellresources.com, and clicking on the 45 Forward tab. And today's conversation is part one of what will be a unique three-part summer series um, with another episode in August. Uh, you can find my the previous episode uh, by going to uh, my site and just uh, looking at our episode of of uh, June thirteenth. So anyway, before the break, we were talking. George was talking a little bit about, you know, some of the 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 well the the, the public the political nature of public education. And I just wanted to mention that uh, um, during the break, I was talking with George and Bert about re- recollecting one um, event that that I experienced in high school. And when I was the editor of the school paper, and uh, was asked to uh, facilitate a meeting of, at that time we had a PTA that became the PTSA with the students, and um, and I forget the exact issues, but it the meeting quickly got contentious and really out of control, you know, and I, I, I and people were yelling and and it sounds like sounds like today (laughs) but um i I basically had to just grab the microphone and 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 take over and and tell people to sit down and and then of course in those days you know i got then chris oh so you're taking over you're dictating the meeting i'm like yeah i that's what i need to do um so i had a a quick appreciation of how difficult teaching i wasn't teaching but it, it can be to really um, deal with the public in public education when you really have all these um, different constituencies. Um, and uh, George, you were talking to break too, about, you know, a, a different, uh, better spin on it, I thought, the, the, which is, uh, you, were, you were quoting Hannah Arendt. Tell me that quote again so we can... Oh,
3: oh yeah. Uh, Hannah Arendt said that life is about using the whole box of crayons. And, and I, think, I think the way that relates to, to teaching, to education, is that uh, to a great degree, the people who are trying to control the curriculum in a school, who are trying to control which books are allowed to be taught, which books are not allowed to be taught, which books are not even allowed to be on the, the premises of the school, even in the library, um, are trying to make sure that everybody is using only a certain number of colors. Right. out of those out of that box of crayons and right and that's i teachers are that that hobbles the teachers today
1: right right, right. yeah Roberta, uh, you know i wanted to to um switch back to you a moment and, and talk about some of your you know uh later experiences teaching in different kind of ways you know and uh you know actually um, introducing crayons that I never had a chance in high school, which was the teaching of philosophy. Um, and, you know, so I, I, uh, I really enjoyed my philosophy classes in college, but, but never we never really had that so much in high school. So tell us a little bit about your your, your teaching philosophy and, and your ethics ball, which I thought was a, you know, a really interesting uh, experience.
2: Well, yeah, we didn't have philosophy per se in high school, but I felt that every course that I cared about was deeply um, uh, influenced or, or, or uh, suffused with philosophical mm-hmm. thought, and that they were these open ended questions where you could uh, hone your arguments and your points, but there was no definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were left questioning, um, I hated the philosophy course I took in college and my recollection was that I did terribly in it. I was quite huh. surprised when I found my transcript, uh, when I went through my papers years later and discovered I got a B, which of course was like an F in those days, but, um, I didn't know what the philosophy, uh, readings were talking about. I, I needed to get to philosophy and still do through, through literature Um, and and I don't actually um, teach philosophy. It's kind of remarkable how little of the content I need to know to direct this foundation, which was created by another classmate of ours. Um, Your listeners must think that we're kind of an incestuous group here, that we all are in touch with each other and uh, keeping track of each other, but um, Gary Squire was a a classmate as well who did not Mm -hmm. have philosophy and In high school, but he did study it and fall in love with it and got a master's in it um, over in Oxford. And um, then decided, as as George, you mentioned, that this would not provide him with the living that he uh, would like and um, went to law school and became a real estate um, business person. But when he decided to become systematic about his philanthropy, he realized that he wanted to acknowledge the debt he. Ode to his philosophy professors. And at one point, we actually went back to New Haven, Mm -hmm. to Yale, to meet with the philosophy professor who was most uh, influential to him. And this, I don't remember, uh, I think it was Professor Morrowitz actually. He was so touched by the experience, so moved by it. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminds me of our, you know, the fact that we talked before about how often. Uh, teachers don't hear from students after a while. I, 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 actually kept in touch with with several teachers. As a matter of fact, I'm still in touch with a teacher. Not so much, but still, I'm from seventh grade because I, wow. I just revered my teachers. I, I just, I just wanted to know what they knew. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, so this professor was thrilled to learn about the foundation. And um, and Gary felt strongly that why aren't more young students introduced to philosophy? So. I hooked up with some actual philosophers and educators mm-hmm. who are interested in this. And uh, we're trying to um, to get this, uh, get philosophy introduced, which is p- proving to be quite a Herculean task because mm-hmm. there are all kinds of obstacles, some of which right. we touched on in terms of the time, the curriculum. You know, philosophy is famously subversive. You know, people get killed for it. And um. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the threat, um, but I'm kind of reassociating here, but this is such a provocative conversation. Ronnie, when you said that you were facilitating that meeting and people got so incensed, no one followed you to your car, I assume, and said, we know who you are and where we live and we're going to come after you, right. which is what's happening these days. Right. Um, it's pretty terrifying now in a way that I don't think it it was i don't mean to glorify the past and i also heard this morning of driving to the gym on npr that several states are passing laws prohibiting libraries from even acquiring certain books that the, the book acquisitions have to be approved by the local politicians right which is completely a terrifying So so philosophy and this kind of open inquiry, you know, we talk about inquiry so much with my colleagues, encouraging children to explore their own thoughts and to hear that other people share them, that they're not alone. There's a way in which the humanities provide such a haven for kids who, uh, you know, feel that their questions are not entertained, they're not taken seriously. Um, for me, philosophy and, and English, uh English classes, literature were kind of synonymous. I know yeah. they're
1: not for everyone, but yeah, um Well, I'll talk a bit too about so you you took it though to another level with the ethics bowl, which I think was an interesting way to really not in, it's not classroom learning, but it's basically turning it into a, a different kind of um I don't want to say practical experience, but really a, a communal experience, a, a, a challenging experience.
2: A, yes, in- the ethical is one of the best events ever. It's a it's a form of debate that we think is is much superior to debate because students are given uh, oh, cases with ethical dilemmas. Some are timeless and some are timely, and they're asked to come up with a position about what one should do. It's 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 not just a theoretical intellectual exercises. is what should happen in this situation when you have two competing systems of right. And they come together and they discuss them. They, they don't argue with each other. They each present their position. Their position is then commented on by the other students. They have The original team has a chance to respond to the comments. And then they're questioned by adult judges or older people, graduate students or whatever. And there's, there's a winner and they get a trophy. But the main thing is that what we hear from students and from teachers and from judges and parents is that the kids are taken seriously. They enjoy talking about serious topics and the students almost to a one say, we don't have this opportunity in school anymore. No one asks us what we think. No one wants to hear what we have to say. No one gives us time to have a serious conversation. It's all statement and on to the next. They also talk about how much rote memorization there is. Mm -hmm. How quickly things uh, have to be moved through. And all I kept thinking about is I wish they could have been in our English class because that's what happened when we had American Lit. Right. And it, they don't have that opportunity now. So the Ethics Bowl, which began as a college event and now is a high school event and also a middle school event, um, is a good introduction to philosophy, but it's also an introduction to inquiry. Uh, it's it's very supportive of, of furthering of democratic ideals because you get to see that no one person has all the answers. You get mm-hmm. to collaborate. It's it's a fabulous event. And there is a website, um, the National High School Ethics Bowl. It's a mm-hmm. based in the University of North Carolina. And I wow. hope that many people right. will check it out.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Roberta. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, you, your description of this reminds me of, of a conversation and that you and George had in the book, too, in high school uh, of a concept, which I really like, which is as opposed to um, transfusional learning of just being, you know, <laughs> getting an infusion of knowledge which in some cases it's is important but uh, your term with, for it was uh, expeditionary learning which i really liked it's sort of like treating you know the learning process as a journey and um and literally um uh you and i and and uh were influenced by george uh, uh talk about that a little bit in terms of you know what do you mean by that george and also you guys can talk about too one of my experiences with you was which was um, uh, using uh basically the great gatsby as an expedition on my own, of
3: our own well that that, that may obviously made sense for you because you know we were we were on long island and, right, right. and that's the setting for the book and and yeah teacher, i think teachers especially english teachers are always trying to figure out a way to make what they're teaching relevant for their for their students and and you know it was it was I thought a lot easier to do for the Great Gatsby than it would have been for say the Scarlet Letter um, right. because the uh, you know you didn't know much at that point about uh, adultery you know but right. Uh, right. but but you knew about Long Island. And and I happened to be living in the town that was East Egg in mm-hmm. the in, in the novel, and and uh, and I knew which house Fitzgerald had used as the model for for the Buchanan house, and right. I was able to tell you that, and I was able to tell you roughly where the Valley of Ashes was if you were taking. Taking the Long Island Railroad or or the subway into into the city, uh, but I didn't know where Gatsby's house was. And I I I told you I assumed there was a real house. I you know I I was confident there was a real house that he had used as a model for it, but I didn't know what it was. And uh, I was uh, pleased to find out when the senior year began. Your senior year began. That you all, you two in particular, had uh, found it. <laughs> <laughs> right. and that is, I think, probably a good definition of expeditionary learning—a literal, a literal expedition.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I think you know, even metaphorically, that's uh, what I felt strongly about the way that you taught, uh, and and as Roberta started to say too about you know, the exploration, you know, of, and you challenge us with the questions. And I think you've said a number of times, it's not about the answers, it's about the questions. And I think that that's, um, that's an important thing. And and it's a hard thing because it, it requires a certain, a certain trust of students that that's what, you know, that that they're going to continue searching for answers. And there's a risk too, because then they're going to keep searching and, you know, they're not, you're not going to shut them up with an answer. (laughs) You know, that's, uh, and i think that is somewhat of the problem sometimes we use answers to shut people up from asking questions and i go ahead
3: one of the one of the things that that <laughs> one of the things that i uh that that i just read recently was uh, there's a a woman uh in the uh a teacher a, a michigan teacher strangely enough even though that's where i think when i think of Michigan teachers, I tend to think of Betsy DeVos, but, <laughs> but this woman was very much the opposite. She, uh, her name is Gail Martin. Mm-hmm. She's a, uh, I don't know her, but I read a comment she made. She was talking about the, the people who are attacking public education as being indoctrinating students, mm-hmm. um, especially leftist indoctrination. And I know we never did that, Right. But but, and she said, she said, the first step in indoctrination is not providing access to ideas; it's eliminating access to ideas, and that's absolutely true. I mean, what we were trying to do was provide access to as many ideas as possible, as frequently as possible, and ideally conflicting ideas, mm-hmm. and let you figure out which one. Well, you wanted to embrace right
1: right yeah um we're going to come up with a break in a couple of minutes but i just want to at least uh touch on um uh one of the difficulties these days with expeditionary learning is that um the environment has changed one of the things that's changed a lot of course is the um uh, ascent of all sorts of digital media right i mean and this is some um, um you know, certainly, it's it's a wonderful thing when I when I can't remember you know someone's name or name of a book and and you can Google it and find out and not rack your brains for for hours or try to ask your your wife or your friends what's the name. But you know, there there is a problem with um, what it does to reading, um, and I just wanted to. So when we come back, we're going to take another short break. When we come back. Um, I wanna pick up this topic with both of you about um, what to do about the fact that people aren't reading books or they're reading a very narrow range of them, as you put it, George, using only a couple of crayons. <laughs> so, so when we come back, folks, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back with our last segment with George and Roberta.
0: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit
0: facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome
1: back, folks, to 45 Forward. We're talking with George McDermott and Roberta Israeloff, the co-authors of What Went Right, um, look at uh, over a lifetime of uh, the public education process and their roles and their experiences over time. So before the break, we were talking about you know, uh, how do we teach people in a, in a time of digital media? And uh, Roberta was talking to me during the break a little bit, I wanted to lift up what she was saying, just about, you know, the impact on engagement, you know, uh, really diving into things and, and how um, digital media has affected it. And, and it certainly is true that people are not deep readers. And, and I have to say, full disclosure, I find it hard too. You know, it's in our course of our daily lives. It's hard, and I actually a few years ago uh, got involved with a, a men's book group of some friends of of, of well, mostly one of my friends, um, and I found that if if I if I wasn't held to the discipline of of having a book every month that I had to be with several other folks to discuss, you know, it, it's hard to find that time to really be engaged in the book. So.
2: Yeah, but time is definitely part of it, and that and social ma- media makes things so much uh, quicker, as you say, and more accessible. Um, but uh, what I was uh, saying during the break was that I just happened to read a letter to the editor uh, of a magazine, and talking about the the experience of looking at a painting, a famous painting uh, or any painting really, on as an image online, a digital image versus mm-hmm. seeing the painting yourself, and this this. Uh, this person, I don't know who this is, just a reader of this magazine wrote, looking at a painting in person is a true and full experience. It requires the observer and the observed to share a space so that both are implicated. It is an encounter with another point of view. And that to me is the essence of what the humanities is, that it's it's an encounter, it's an engagement, it's well, I think the arts... Are, are the truest way for me. I know other people get there through different uh, paths, but for me, it's it's the only way I can really get out of my own skin and see into, it's like a window into someone else's soul. When you read a book in a serious way that's meaningful to you, you really get to, under, to get out of your own head and into someone else's thoughts and feelings and being. And so it's an encounter. It's not... Um, it's not static. It's very dynamic. And um, being taught to engage with a text in this way uh, in in high school, in our English classes, it wasn't just it was engaging with the text in a deep way, but it was then it was engaging with each other and hearing what the other students had to say, hearing what George had to say, which leads to the most helpful Concept in philosophy I've come upon yet, which is this idea of intellectual humility that nobody has all the answers, but that together we can come up with an answer that may be better than some others. Mm -hmm. And you get that when you kind of give yourself up to the artistic experience, whether it's looking at a play or reading a book or looking at a painting. And I don't, I think that's something that has just dropped out of education in our rush to quantify. Mm-hmm. I know, George, we talked a lot about quantifiable results yeah. as opposed to qualitative learning, and I, I think that's such a loss.
1: Yeah, pick up on that, George.
2: Well, they, they, there are,
3: I was thinking as you were talking, Roberta, I was thinking about the, the, the notion that a lot of people see, don't want that kind of engagement. They don't, they don't or they don't want their, their children. To have that kind of engagement, they don't want—they don't want their children to be able to identify with other people. They don't want their children to be able to walk in someone else's shoes. They don't want children, their children, to be able to feel what it would be like in someone else's skin. They, 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 they and as a result of that, I mean, the. I had a thought the other day. I was thinking that there seemed to be there seems to be and embracing these days of ignorance as a solution for social conflict. Hmm. Um, if you don't know it, then, then the conflict isn't there. If you're not aware of it, then you're not conflicted by it. Um, and if the teacher, if a teacher is not allowed to teach something about something, then the parents and, the, and as a result, their children can pretend it never existed, if you want to deal with stuff like like uh, like this history's fraught racial history, um, or they can pretend it doesn't exist, as as with like uh, women and gender and that sort of stuff that's going and and discrimination that's still going on, or they can pretend that it will not happen, mm-hmm. and because because if you don't teach about it, it it, 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 uh, it didn't, it doesn't, and it won't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the belief. And, and uh, teachers, that's antithetical to yeah. education. Teachers, that's not how teachers want to work. Teachers want to work the way Roberta just said. They want to try to present things that will engage the students and and cause the students to see things from points of view that they didn't see them before that coming into the class. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point, isn't it? Isn't that the point? <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I think people, I'm sorry, Berta, go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say, we three are definitely in agreement about that, but, you mm-hmm. know, that's, why, yeah. that's why we stayed together. That's why we were able to either stay together or reconnect so quickly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that there, you know, there, there's, I think part of the problem, well, for me, you know, as a journalist seeing so much of the proliferation of information and data and opinions that it becomes overwhelming um, to the system and people sort of opt out and they, and they go toward one of the things that you talk about a lot is the constant struggle with, um, you know, the balance of standardization Versus the flexibility that you, you guys really need in order to deal with your students. And it, it comes up in two ways. As George mentioned, it comes up in, in, in curriculum as well as, you know, the, the constant, um, it, it is sort of a challenge. And you guys have admitted it, uh, the, the, the two sides of what we call tracking, you know, and in certain, you know, some, in some ways it, it helps you uh, work with students in, in a more specialized, but perhaps technocratic way. Um, but it it also then um, you know, segments people, you know, and now you know there there are there there are difficulties in terms of you know, political, you know, um influences about, you know, against uh you know uh, sort of, I guess, tracking for lack of a bad word. but but how do you, you know, advance students, but also, you know, lift students up that you didn't might perhaps expect to be, you know, at a certain level. Um, and George, I know you, you know, so you were at Syosset and you were at uh, in, Phil- in the Philadelphia School. And I'm sure this came up a lot in terms of how do you really do the best for students, you know?
3: It, it, yeah, it's a constant. And, and that's a constant uh, tension between, I mean, obviously you would love it if you could take a totally egalitarian approach to, mm-hmm. to teaching, teaching your students. Um, and it would be great if we could take kids of all abilities and all backgrounds and all futures, you know, all what, what their life, their lives are likely to be in the future, and put them together in the same pot and let them influence each other, you know, as well as the teacher influencing them. Um, I think from my point of view, that's an ideal situation, but it's also a resource-heavy uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if I had had, I did in, in Philadelphia, I had classes that were, um, there were students in, that, in the same class who were reading at, uh, they were nominally in say 11th grade, but they were some of them were reading at maybe third grade level, and others were reading at the level that the science students were reading at. Uh, and that's, ve- that's very difficult to manage when you are the only teacher in the room. Now, if I, if I had had teaching assistants, if I had had support people, if I had had uh, a staff, it would have been marvelous. It would have been great. We could have brought them together when it made sense to bring them together. We could have taken them apart, uh, uh, separate, taken them apart, separated them <laughs> uh, when that made sense. We could have uh, we could have provided extra learning opportunities for the, the faster kids and and remedial stuff for the slower kids. We could. Have, and you know, all kinds of experiential enrichment. But I never even saw a teaching assistant in the years that I was teaching in Phil. So I don't, I, I assume they existed because they were part of the, the budgeting process, but I never saw one. I never had one. I didn't know how, you know. For me, it was just a matter of figuring out a way to do uh, either three different lesson plans for the single class or even more frequently, teaching to the middle and hoping that the that the the, the faster kids wouldn't get bored and the mm-hmm. and the slower kids wouldn't get lost. Right. I see you nodding, Roberta.
2: Yeah, I just heard. Uh, I, I agree. I think that the uh, what what do they call it? Differential learning is a joke, and it's disrespectful of teachers because it makes them. Uh, Make three lesson plans instead of one and and no one or teach to the middle and no one is served. But to your point, George, again, uh, uh, in the mornings I listen to NPR and I just heard a story that said that having a teaching assistant in the room is not effective. You need two teachers. You need full two teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's another sign to me of how teachers are disrespected and undervalued, Mm -hmm. you know, devalued. In our society that we can't because of course you know we we should be together so I also, it was so striated i didn't know most of the kids in the school i just knew the kids who were in our classes mm-hmm. i didn't know mm-hmm. the kids who weren't in in our track at the time mm-hmm. it was like going to a private school in a public right. school yeah. which is not optimal right but um but on the other hand, so putting everybody into one classroom is what democracy is but you don't just throw them in with one teacher and say, "Handle this." You know, right. it's completely disrespectful right. of the profession of teachers.
3: Right. I, I don't know whether it was in your class, your year or not, but there was a there was one time when the English and uh, history teachers at Sayasit tried to coordinate the way we were teaching. We were like like uh, we tried to we tried to be teaching about the same kinds of things, same kinds of issues at the same time. So you would get the social studies perspective and the humanist human humanity humanist points of view at the same time. Right. And you know, I don't know how well it worked. Or, I don't know. It was never really team teaching, but it was at least sort of coordinated. Right.
1: Yeah, well, well we're we're Coming to the close of our conversation, I I just want to end on a note that one thing you mentioned to me before, Roberta, would, or I think you actually talk about in the book too, just uh, punctuating the fact that teaching being both a science and an art, you know, it's a, a, you call it a hybrid profession, which makes it hard to wrap your arms around. it. it's true, Uh, but it involves both of that and requires you to be, you know, constantly thinking and changing. And as you mentioned before, you can't be static as a teacher. But at any rate, uh, there's much more to talk about. I want to thank both of you, though, for a terrific conversation. I'm glad we have one more session because there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, And uh, so folks, watch out for that. uh, Next month on August 16th, we'll have our third of our trilogy with Roberta and George. Um, uh, Once again, folks, um, uh, tell your friends that they miss our conversation today with George McDermott and Roberta Israelov. You can listen to it uh, as a podcast on voiceamerica.com to search for my show voice 45 forward you could also find an apple and google podcast spotify iheart radio or go to my website rowellresources.com and click on 45 forward um, so uh, be joined, very sure to join me next monday 12 noon pacific 3 p.m eastern when i'll be talking with jackie Agdern of friendship force an international cultural exchange and home hosting organization so folks until then Keep moving forward, 45 Forward.
0: You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward.